0: All right, here we are back in the book of Acts. We're in Philippi. If you were with us last time, uh, you know that uh, wonderful things were happening there with the conversion of Lydia, the first woman in Europe to come to Christ. There's, there's something Paul said to the Galatians that really marked his life. And I want to start there today. This is in Galatians chapter five. You can just uh, listen as I read this. In Galatians chapter five, he says, um, it was for freedom that Christ set us free Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. So he's talking about freedom. What kind of freedom do you think he had in mind? Well, if you know the book of Galatians, you know that um, he's talking about really religiosity, the following, the details of the Mosaic law. They were, they were going back to Judaism from Christianity and people had come in saying that you had to be circumcised to be a Christian, you had to do all these certain things, these traditions and all that. And those issues were all addressed by the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, but uh, some churches slipped into that error and Paul's addressing that. So he's really talking about salvation by circumcision, the Galatian heresy. That's the kind of freedom he had in mind. Most Americans think of freedom as doing whatever we want, but that's not what Paul is thinking about. We are free from all the religious practices that Jesus fulfilled that are no longer required of us and uh, so that means we can do whatever we want. No, it doesn't mean that. He talks about circumcision and all of that, but then in Galatians chapter five, verse 13, Paul says, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Beautiful passage. Through love, serve one another. That is a radical idea of freedom that Jesus brought into the world. It is as his followers, I think our greatest challenge because if our flesh ever gets to us, it's usually in the area of being self-focused. But we are set free from that in Christ and we are to serve one another in love. In today's text, we're going to see several ways that that occurs. So last time in Acts 16, we looked at that wonderful story of God's grace as the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe what Paul was teaching, to believe the gospel. So she's baptized along with her whole household, and she's the first person in Europe to embrace Jesus, and and now the gospel flag is planted on European soil, and by that I mean the kingdom of Jesus has arrived, bringing freedom. Uh, who's against freedom? Well, Satan loves to bind people. He's the, he's the one that enslaves men through sin and through lies and deception and he is not happy about the flag of Christ being planted in Europe. So there's going to be opposition to Paul and Silas there. Serious opposition, really. And it begins with a demon-possessed girl in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So they meet this demonized girl. She's a slave and she tells fortunes. Now, ancient people, quite a few modern people too, but ancient people were obsessed with charms and spells and omens and anything magical that might bring them protection or some kind of guidance. And of course, many people in the world seek those things today as well, not only in third world countries, but in gleaming cities like Los Angeles. Well, it doesn't gleam much anymore, but big cities like Los Angeles, modern cities. In fact, the less Christian a society becomes, the more superstitious it tends to become. There are poor people versions of fortune telling and all that kind of thing. And there are very wealthy people that have their own versions of that stuff going on as well. So when people turn away from God, they often turn to things that will help them manage their lives spiritually, like in the universe. They can control the universe or get it to harmonize in their favor in some way. It's human nature to be like that. And there are always hucksters out there ready to use people's fears of the dangers of life and their desires to make a lot of money. And they do that by telling fortunes or offering solutions or connections to the mystical or or things like that. They learn, these hucksters learn how to manipulate people's fears and they promise them protection or good fortune or whatever and they make them pay. That's the main idea here. It's a big money-making operation. That's what palm readers do. That's what astrologers do, or faith healers, or witches. There's about a million self-identifying witches in America today. That's quite a few, not all of them are hucksters taking advantage of people for money. Some are just pagans, but there are plenty of people who do use things like that to take advantage of people and make money. So these slave owners in Philippi were just cut from the same sort of cloth as you might see on a television faith healer program, right? Making all kinds of extravagant promises. If you give me money, if you send in your money, send me money and the gods will bless you. These particular guys had one big advantage. They had an actual, true link to the supernatural world. So, this slave girl was demon possessed. A, a, a fallen angel, a demon, was in her. Servants of Satan dwelt in her and spoke through her. Now, Many people in the ancient world, in Greece, in that area, and even from beyond the borders of Greece and Macedonia in those places, they would go to the oracle at Delphi to get pronouncements about the future. And that's that place at Delphi is where demon-possessed women would, would prophesy the future. Well, Delphi is a long way from Philippi. So to have an oracle like the one in Delphi in your own town, that was a big deal. That was a big plus. He didn't have to travel. The big question is, did this girl know the future? Did she really know the future? And the answer to that is absolutely no. She did not know the future. Only God knows the future. Everyone else, human or devil, can only guess at the future. That's why in the Bible, God freely challenges pagans and false prophets all the time to tell the future because they can't do it. They don't know the future. A couple of examples, Isaiah forty-one twenty-two. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods because if you really could tell the future, you were a god. Isaiah 44, seven, thus says the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them take, and let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place because they can't do that. So God challenges false religious leaders all the time about that. False prophets, fortune tellers, soothsayers, all those kind of people. And Jeremiah, the, the Lord warns his people about lying prophets. In Jeremiah 23, 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. So God mocks fortune tellers and false prophets because they don't know the future and they can't know the future. Only God knows the future. And he does reveal some of it to true prophets. So there will be a test by which people like us, as simple mortals, um, we can judge a true prophet from the false. Because if anybody is truly a prophet of God, receiving revelation from God, they will be able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. Anybody that falls short of that is a phony. And we don't have to pay any attention to them at all. If they're ever right about the future, it's just a lucky guess, nothing more than that. So only God knows the future and he reveals it to his own special prophets. Well, then how did these guys get rich with using this girl as a fortune teller? That's the great right question. Well, you know, fortune telling is really the art of manipulation. That's what it is, because you don't really need anybody, a a demon to make a lot of money doing it. Fortune tellers are famously wrong almost all the time. Of course, like I said, once in a while they'll make it by by pure chance, just happen to be right sometimes, but you don't need to know the future to be a fortune teller. All you have to do is hook people into your scam by feeding their fears and making them promises of all various kinds oh, this is going to happen to you. I see this. I see this in your future. That's all you got to do is give them something that they can latch on to. But if there's something that you really can do that appears in the slightest way miraculous, boy, you're going to really come out on the top of your field because if you got some kind of connection to the spiritual realm where you can get information, you will never know the future, but you can get information, that blows people away and then they'll just accept whatever you say. That is why it helps to have an actual demoniac in your rip-off routine thing going on. So, because demons don't know the future, but they can know things that nobody else knows. Demons can access information, not in the future, but now or maybe a little bit in the past. They can learn about your past or your life now. They might know things about your life now that nobody else knows, but because spiritual forces do exist and are around places, they might be able to get information like that. And that's all it takes. If, if you can produce one bit of information about somebody that you shouldn't know, then they're gonna think that there's a miracle worker here, that, that the, this person is a miracle worker. If I know the present and then I tell your future, If I know a secret in the present and then I tell your future, which I can't possibly know the future, you're gonna believe that I do know the future because I know something secret today. I don't need to know your future, I just need to get you to think I know your future. So this girl in Acts 16, 16, Luke says, actually my Bible says she has a spirit of divination. The the Greek text, and there's a reason they don't translate it this way exactly. The Greek text says she has a spirit of Python. Well nobody knows what that is anymore so they put divination there. But that takes us back to the Oracle at Delphi. A, A Pythoness is what the Bible calls her because According to Greek mythology, the god Apollo killed a giant serpent at Delphi and he fell into a pit and these gases came up from him and his spirit would take control of the priestesses at Delphi and they would speak the words of Apollo uh, through them. So these things would, they'd sit on this weird stool and it would rise up within them and they would get into this ecstasy and they would speak these mystical um, things and prophesy the future often in some kind of code or some kind of a, a sneaky way but the high priestess at delphi was called a pythia because this python this giant snake was killed by apollo and it's from his death that these abilities came to these women so so in this case here in act 16 her masters would say to people, they'd say, this girl is a Pythia as well. She, she speaks with the voice of Apollo. She knows the future as well. So this girl was like having the god Apollo right in town and people would pay great sums to get a word from Apollo at the Oracle at Delphi. In fact, Laura and I were at Delphi. It's an incredibly beautiful place massive buildings they had to build just to hold all the treasure people would bring. The place was just a, a fortune of stuff, dedicated statues, dedicated monuments, special temples to hold the treasures that people would bring to Delphi. To, to, I don't even know if those people lived high on the hog or anything like that, but they had all this stuff, this loot that people would bring to, to get some kind of a word from Apollo through the Pythia. So this Pythia starts following Paul and the team around, Luke says in verse 17, following after Paul and us, notice it's us, Luke is there as 12, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And it says, verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, many days. That's just weird. So it went on for days. Philippi is not a very big city, it's, uh, about 150 acres, it's not that big, and maybe 15,000 people lived there, total. You know? So word would get around pretty quick about this girl who's known in town as this fortune teller, this woman with a connection to the god Apollo, that uh, she's tailing Paul and Silas all the time and proclaiming things about them. So um, I don't think it was all the time, but it was often and regular. And so this demonized girl would show up announcing the missionaries as representatives of the most high god. Now, Most High God's a little bit vague. Um, In a Roman city, people might interpret that as being Zeus or something like that, Uh, Jupiter to the Romans, but rightly understood, these words were pretty close to who they really were, I mean, who they really did proclaim, the the true God and the way of salvation. The the Greek text actually says a way of salvation, the the article isn't actually, the article the isn't actually used there, but... um, So it could be the way of salvation or or just a way of salvation. But it's pretty close to the truth what she says. Is is that a problem? Is that a problem for Paul? Do the apostles want Apollo recommending their message about salvation through a Pythonist? Well, she might not mention Jesus, but they can mention Jesus, so maybe they could use that, right? Is that a good thing? Do they want a demon as the head of their advertising agency in, in Philippi? No, they really don't. Uh, The greatest danger in missions in the ancient world and today, ever since Christianity started spreading through the world, is what's called syncretism, and that's the blending of Christianity and pagan religion. You see it all over the place. If you go to Haiti today, that's like prime example number one. You see this weird blending of Christian terms, of Jesus, God. Everything's got Jesus and God all over it, except uh, it's just steeped in voodoo as well. They're all blended together. It's, a, it's kind of a, a new religion. And Jesus becomes little more than a magic word there in Haiti for most people, a kind of a talisman, not the incarnate son of God who's sovereign over all things. I, you, still, you go see witch doctors and talk about Jesus with them, because that's normal there, it's a blended thing. So they don't want that to happen. So after days of this girl showing up and being a kind of a carnival barker for the missionaries, Paul has finally just had enough after many days. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, see he doesn't like it, and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. Finally, problem solved, right? No problem just beginning. Uh, Paul may have suspected it would cause problems to free this girl from demonic oppression, which may be why he didn't do it sooner. But he casts out the demon, which is truly a blessing for the girl. Uh, This girl was tormented by this demon, and now she's a very different person. She doesn't... Inspire awe or fear anymore either. Her connection to the supernatural has been severed. So she's just a girl. And her masters, her owners are furious. They are furious. It's remarkable how much opposition to Christianity really does come down to money in the end like so many things in life. But often that's the case. Well this girl's owners are quick to take their revenge um, for wrecking their corrupt, deceptive, fortune-telling business. So they don't, they don't attack the missionaries personally. They, they use the force of government. And they don't file charges about the girl. Uh, what are they going to say? Um, you need to punish these people. They cast a demon out of our girl, our slave girl, but um, they're going to accuse them of sinister activities in a more general sort of way. So the accusation is a little bit vague, but it falls under certain statutes or customs um, as saying that these men are peddling a religion that is anti-Roman. That's really going to be their their uh, the power that they have here to go before the government, the local government. So verse 19. When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans." Remember, this is a Roman colony. Philippi is a Roman colony, a very Roman population, even though it's in Macedonia. So we also mentioned last time that the emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews out of Rome for whatever reason in AD 49. This is AD 50. So this is right after that. So, And guess who Paul and Silas are? What are they? Well, they're Jews, so the, the team leaders here are Jews, and notice that they grab Paul and Silas, they don't grab Timothy and Luke, because we know that Luke was a Gentile and Timothy is half-Jewish. So the claim is these are vagabond Jews causing disturbances and teaching anti-Roman customs, which would be their religion. What are they doing here among us? That's what they're, they're kind of saying. We're, we're Romans, we're the masters of the world, we, we know what's going on. They have, they're attempting to lead us out of our heritage, our, our gods, our very way of life. They're trying to change everything. So they drag him before the judgment seat and Philippi, the judgment seat, in a lot of smaller cities, the judgment area and trials were held in the marketplace, in the forum area. So in fact, that's... That judgment seat, what's called the Bema seat, can still be seen in Philippi today. It's part of the ruins there. So lots of people are around. They're all worked up into a mob mentality, and they demand that these miscreants be punished, right? So the praetors, the the rulers there in the city, they act very rashly. They don't give them a trial. There's no investigation. Verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, receiving such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas are stripped and beaten with rods. Have you ever seen pictures of those Roman guys with uh, a bundle of rods? and there's sort of an ax head protruding out of the bundle of rods. They're just standing there. They've got a toga bundle of rods kind of with, kind of, kind of fancy wrapping around it and there's an ax head that sticks out of it. Those guys are called lictors and they give you a licking, I guess, but um, they beat people for the government. That's what they do. They kind of enforce the laws and the ax head shows that they have the power of death as well to do that. So these are the, the guys who do the beating and Paul actually mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, that three times he was beaten with rods, he says, and that would have probably been those guys. So this is one of those times. So the jailkeeper was under strict orders to guard them securely. So chains were added and their feet were put in stocks, which is incredibly uncomfortable and very difficult. So the jailer is not named. We don't know who he was, but he is now going to become the focus of this story. Hmm. Why? Because the Lord wants him. Of all the people here, the Lord wants that man. And here we truly see that Paul and Barnabas still have freedom and they're going to use it to serve other people. So they're in a cell, they are chained, their feet are locked in the stocks, but in Christ, these men have a special kind of freedom. Their, their hearts are still free even though they're all locked up. Their spirits are free and even in this place, they're free to do what Paul said in Galatians, free to serve others through love. So they have the Lord there and they have each other there. So they start praying and singing in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now notice Luke specifically mentions that the other prisoners were listening to them. That kind of becomes important. It's it's probably something the boys in the dungeon don't see very often, people singing and praising while they're locked up in the stocks and all of that. So um, they're paying attention to this whole thing. Most people don't feel like singing in dungeons. Do they pray to their gods? They might do that, they might do that. But these two are singing hymns of praise to the Lord God. They are praising the God who allowed them to be beaten and put in stocks in the inner recesses of the prison there. And in a pagan's mind and in many modern people's minds as well, the gods are there to get you out of trouble. I mean, that's what you pray to them for after all. You know, people actually believe that God or the gods exist for them, not that we exist for God. So... God's just supposed to serve us. It's like he owes us, you know? So how could you let me suffer? How could you let me come to this horrible place, people say. So they grumble at their God or they think that their God is capricious or he isn't paying attention or he doesn't care about them. They don't know the real God and they don't know their own unworthiness so they grumble about God. Now some more humble people might think that they've offended their God some way and they they plead with him or her to show them what they've got to do to win back the God's favor. What can I do? What can I offer you? How can I pray to, to get you to grant me fortune again or luck or whatever? but not Paul and Silas, they don't have a pagan understanding of God at all. They, they know they serve a sovereign God, a God who is not capricious, a God who is in absolute control, a God who gave himself over to unspeakable suffering to make them his children. So they trust God and they know that Jesus said to expect persecution and suffering. John 15, 20, Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So none of this is a surprise to them. A Christian is called for a purpose. God saves us for a purpose. And that purpose is to bear witness to God's saving grace and his love for the lost. So the powers of darkness and just wicked humanity they're going to hate people that share that message because they hate the one who expects them, whether demon or sinner, to bow to, to God, and they don't want to do that. People are pretty committed to making up their own gods. I don't know if you've noticed that. But when the real God is mentioned, it kind of raises their hackles a little bit. So for Paul and Silas, there, there is joy in their pain, and their pain is real, but they have joy because God is in control and they know they're secure in Christ and they know that whatever happens in this world is a temporary affair. So they're, they're full of praise in a dungeon. It's kind of interesting, you know, Paul in this Philippian dungeon here, because it, it, in his letters, uh, years later, he wrote to the Philippian church and what's the theme of the letter of Philippians? It's joy, right? And here he is singing with joy in a Philippian prison. But that's the letter, Philippians, where he writes, um, reminds the Philippians. He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So whatever happens to them there, they know that's their future to be transformed into glory. Their humble state will be in conformity with the body of His glory, will be like Christ's glorified body. So this world is, is not our home. And also in that same letter to the Philippians, which he'll write years later, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, knowing the God they serve, Paul and Silas are singing his praises with welts on their bodies and their feet held fast, in the stocks. And here, on this particular day, God intervenes rather dramatically and directly. So God orders up a highly selective earthquake. Verse 26, suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Big shakeup, right? But the building doesn't fall down, nobody gets hurt. Instead, the doors either bounce off their hinges or they break their locks and the chains are undone. They pop off the walls or whatever. So if you're thinking, you know, that couldn't happen. Well, no, it really couldn't happen. I mean, that's, that's pretty strange, right? That's pretty strange. It's not normal, but it did happen because God, well, using a vacation Bible school word, God is omni- omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. And so he's designed this earthquake very specially to break open the prison, but not hurt anybody. So no, that's not normal, it's just God's power. So it's, it's remarkable, it's a carefully designed earthquake. It opens the doors, so they all escape, right? Well, that's what the jailer thought. When he saw the doors open, he just thought, oh my gosh, they're all gone, they're, they're all gone. The penalty for him, for letting prisoners escape, it's a horrible death. So he takes his own sword out, he's probably a small sword, puts it up against his belly and he's going to kill himself. He's going to run himself through. And Paul yells out, don't do it. We're all here. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We are all here. None of the prisoners escaped. That makes you think about them, the other prisoners in there that were listening to Paul and Silas singing praises to God. They know that a miracle happened. This is not a normal situation that they're in either. So a miracle happened while these two strange Jesus men were singing praises to God, their God, you know? So here's a strange kind of freedom here we see, isn't it? Think about it. Paul and Silas do not escape. And when the jailer hears Paul's voice, he can't believe it. Verse 29, he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he knew something about their message, didn't he? What must I do to be saved? That's a rather unusual response to finding prisoners alive, isn't it? Prisoners still there. But maybe it's not that unusual if you think about it. This man was on the verge of suicide. God acted in an undeniable way. The doors were opened, yet the men did not escape. That's just incredible. It made no sense what happened. The most shocking thing of all is that Paul and Silas have more regard for his life than they do for their own freedom. They're more interested in him not killing himself than they are in their escape. They thought of him before they thought of themselves and they were in the worst circumstances imaginable. All they knew about him was how hard he had made it for them. He's the guy that locked them in the inner dungeon. He's the guy that put their feet in the stocks and they rescue him. That's love. You were called to freedom brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another the flesh would say, let's go, we can get out of here. We can escape, we can get out, it's the middle of the night, we can escape the city and be on the road long before they know we're gone. But their love shown to this man turned his world upside down. He was the jailer, but these bound men were the ones who were truly free. He was the one in prison, wasn't he? He, he was bound in sin, and suddenly he's aware of his condition as a sinner. He had a deep sense of his own guilt. He needed a savior. So what was happening to him? Well, like Lydia in verse 14, a miracle is happening inside of him, the greatest miracle. The Lord is opening his heart. The lights are coming on. The spiritual eyes are opening and he cries out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. And that, of course, is the question that all men should ask, but only a few do. They answered him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. That answer is so important and we're kind of out of time. So we're gonna take all next week to look at their answer to his question. What must I do to be saved? But today we're talking about the freedom that a Christian has to love other people without conditions, We don't have to win, do we? We don't have to make people pay, do we, for wronging us? We have one purpose on this earth and to use the Apostle Peter's words, our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our purpose on this earth, to proclaim the excellencies of a God who shows mercy. That's it. If God wants us to do that while we're in prison and our feet are in the stocks, that's okay. Our great purpose is not to live it up, but to live for Jesus Christ. And Christ wants jailers and prisoners. He wants the high and the low. He wants the powerful and the weak. He wants the lofty and the crushed in spirit. So our freedom Purchased by Christ's blood is not a freedom to do whatever we want. It's a freedom to serve one another in love. It's a radical definition of freedom that changes the world. It's a freedom to serve one another. That is radical. And that radical idea leads to singing praises, even in a dungeon. Let's pray. Lord, you've set us free. Help us use that freedom for you for your kingdom, for people that you love. Fill our hearts with Christ-like compassion for them. May our service to you be acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, next week we'll talk about the answer to the jailer's question.